welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today, we have Cliff Reed. Cliff works for the New South Wales Ambulance Service as one of the retrieval physicians with Sydney Hems. He also works in emergency medicine in the enticingly named Northern Beaches Hospital in Australia. He's got a fascination with human factors and factors that optimise team performance in resuscitation. And he's going to chat to us today about the Zero Point Survey. Cliff, thanks so much for coming on to join us. It's a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. So, I guess before we dive into the meat of Zero Point Survey, can you tell us a little bit about why it emerged as an idea? Yeah, it came about really as a result of observation over years, not just by me, but by my colleagues, of an interesting phenomenon, which is that sometimes... You can do a job like a pre-hospital mission or in the ED or ICU and there was nothing particularly challenging about the clinical side but you can come away after that job or mission and have that feeling that it just didn't go smoothly. It was a bit of a cluster and everyone has had that feeling where you wish it had gone differently and you can't quite figure out why it didn't, why it didn't go as smoothly as as some of the jobs we do. And sometimes it is because of clinical factors, but often it's those non-clinical elements that over the years through different courses and so on have been labelled non-technical skills or human factors or crew resource management or team resource management. And we sort of all know what we mean by that, but I got frustrated that it wasn't really taught in a structured or comprehensive way and I really wanted to put all the stuff I'd learned through different aviation related CRM courses and health related CRM courses into one bucket and sort it out and give it some structure so that I would then be able to remember it and apply it both preemptively when you're sort of on the way to a job but also post hoc when you're debriefing a case and you're trying to figure out how it could have gone better, for example, or what the good things were beyond the clinical stuff. So the zero-point survey really is a structured way of addressing the non-clinical elements of a resuscitation encounter to try and optimise the way that case runs. It's interesting. There's, There's definitely always a sensation, I guess, with any big job where you've got somebody who's big sick that... A lot of the time it feels like you're completely winging it and everything is done on the fly, including who you're working with, where you're working, the environment you're working in. So I guess anything that improves that structure is going to be really helpful. How does that look in practice? Take us through the zero point. Well, it starts with a simple acronym STEP, which stands for self, team, environment and patient. And the reason for the name Zero Point Survey is that we're all taught that patient assessment and management begins with the primary survey, the ABC or CABC in trauma. But that's not really the earliest opportunity to make sure that case goes well. For a pre-hospital mission, for example, you've got an opportunity to start lining things up when you arrive on scene. 
you know, and you're assessing for scene safety hazards and you're working out who the other personnel are on scene and you're figuring out what the mechanism of injury was. But the zero point on the clock doesn't really start there either. It might start en route to the scene where you're thinking about the information you've been given and what you might need to do, what you can expect to find, where you're going to park, what equipment you'll take from your vehicle to the patient. But that's not the zero point on the clock either. The zero point on the clock, if you're a paramedic or HEMS physician, might be when you arrive on base in the morning and you figure out who you're teamed up with that day and you're doing your vehicle checks and equipment checks. Or, you know, the zero point on the clock where you can make sure that mission goes well might be the night before the early shift when you're deciding whether or not to crack open that second bottle of Shiraz. So we've got all these opportunities to get the job to go well before we meet the patient, before the primary survey. And that's why we called it the zero point survey. Your Australian roots are showing through there in that the second bottle of Shiraz is probably more likely to be a second bottle of Buckfast up here. <laughs> right. So the zero point survey is not a great phrase, not a great word. But when you're using the terminology primary, secondary, tertiary survey, there isn't really a good way of giving it a zero number. The, the word doesn't really exist. So that's why we said the zero point on the clock. It doesn't mean there's zero point in doing it because we think there's a lot of point <laughs> in doing it. So, yeah, the structure is self-team and environment and then patient. And we can really go as deep as you like into any of the components of this, but broadly, self means your physical and psychological preparedness to perform optimally in a difficult job. Team refers to how you structure your team in terms of leaders and members and how they communicate. And environment is how you control and manage your resuscitative real estate, whether it's a, you know, a road crash scene or you're under a train or bay one of resus or whether it's the operating theatre or a crash call in the bathroom on the orthopaedic ward. The same principles apply in terms of the components of how you control and manage your environment. You get those in place, you start managing the patient with the primary survey. And just like with the primary survey, we're taught that you know, if the patient deteriorates, you go back and you repeat the ABCs, you repeat the primary survey. The idea is if the job is kind of falling apart, becoming chaotic and discoordinated, then you go back and repeat the zero point survey, try and figure out, you know, is it you? Is it the team? Is it the environment? What do we need to get back in line to make this go well? And once the resuscitation is underway, the key elements of progressing that smoothly are making sure that all the resuscitation providers are on the same page, the so-called sharing of a mental model. And that requires two things, an update on what we think is going on and a plan on what we're going to do. So the update and the plan, the U and P spells up, so that follows step. So step up, S-T-E, before you meet the patient, P for the patient primary survey, and then the UP for making sure things continue to progress smoothly and in a coordinated fashion. I like the fact that it builds on itself in the, that kind of constant going back and reassessing things. We're very good at, at building that into our structures for reassessing an A to E in a patient who's deteriorating. But actually, you're quite right in that the, it's often the scene or the team that is deteriorating and the patient might be in a reasonably predictable phase of their illness. Yeah, agree. Talk us through from your point of view how this works in practice so let's say that you are back in your basics days when you were working in Hampshire so you don't have much in the way of a team that you can pre-brief but I'm guessing there's some stuff you can do night before days before in terms of checking your kit over 
Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of physical preparedness, we use the I'm safe acronym that we've borrowed from our aviation colleagues, which stands for illness, medications, stress, alcohol and other drugs and their after effects, fatigue, and the E is eating and elimination, elimination being weeing and pooing. So, you know, the most immediately applicable one there is you get a call and you're responding from home for basics. Eating and elimination means, well, if I'm going on a two or three hour job, I need to have a snack bar in my pocket and I need to go for a wee before I jump in the car. Otherwise, I'm going to be distracted the whole time. You know, fatigue means being honest about where you are in terms of sleep and energy levels and whether it's really appropriate for you to be responding. If you've just finished a 12-hour shift on the ICU and now you're available for basics overnight and you're really tired and you get a job in the middle of the night in bad weather, in the dark, just acknowledging that you're fatigued and maybe taking a buddy along with you to navigate and watch your back might be a better option than responding on your own. Alcohol and other drugs, most of us do not turn up to work pissed or stoned, but you know we could have the after-effects of booze if we've had a good weekend with friends or been to a stag night or something a couple of days before that you know we may still have those after effects and we need to be mindful of that not turning up to work sick uh, is something that it's taken us a global pandemic to actually learn not to do (laughs) Uh, so we're a bit better at that now than we used to be but you know some of them are a bit harder to address particularly stress and fatigue because yeah i don't know anyone that hasn't been stressed or tired at some point that's just called tuesday So what do you do about that? I think the point of having it in the zero point survey is to acknowledge it, be mindful of it. And if you can't address it directly, you tell your teammates. If you've had no sleep for whatever reason and you're working with other people that you know well and you've developed a culture where you can be honest about your limitations, just letting them know that means they can watch your back. And there's a patient at the end of all of this, so they will do better. So that just summarized the sort of physical components of the zero point survey the physical preparedness as part of self and then we've got all the psychological elements too. In terms of the physical stuff, what you're talking about in terms of fatigue and stress, I'm trying to get better at verbalising that at the start of a job and saying, look, I'm tired at the moment, you know, you've woken me up in the middle of the night, you just keep an eye on me and if my decisions don't seem to be making sense, stop me and question me and just sharing that mental model as well as the, the kind of patient-specific mental models. And it's something I think that we're, as a culture, not necessarily very good at doing, at kind of accepting our own fallibility i completely agree and i think it's great particularly the way you worded it as well as choosing to share that information because you know if you're leading a resuscitation i find that that expression of vulnerability fallibility as you put it that humanness definitely does not undermine confidence in your leadership i feel that it reinforces it people trust you more and want to help you more want to help you lead more You touched on the cognitive readiness. We've spoken with various folk on the non-technical aspects of resuscitation. And this keeps coming up and and it's something I think we're still not very good at teaching. What are your kind of focuses for that cognitive readiness? I break it down into three components, which I acknowledge is a massive oversimplification. And there's a lot more that could be included. But I think about it in terms of managing the stress response or the, the emotional component. That's one. The second is managing our cognitive limits in terms of bandwidth so we don't become overloaded. And the third is acknowledging and managing our perceptual limitations, so our situational awareness, that recognition that 
If we're task focused, we can't simultaneously have an overview and team lead. So yeah, the sort of stress and emotional side, the cognitive side and the perceptual side, and they all overlap, but I I split them up just for ease of teaching and ease of self-diagnosis as well. But fundamental to the management of it is one key superpower that everyone really needs to develop, and that is metacognition, you know, the ability to think about your own thinking, to recognize what's happening, almost step outside yourself for a moment, look back in and go, oh, you're getting a bit overloaded there, Cliff. Um, You need to offload some of these tasks. Or, Cliff, you're getting a bit anxious about this clinical situation. Let's take some time out and employ the psychological tools to reappraise this as a challenge rather than a threat so we can manage that stress response. Or... Cliff, you're becoming very task-focused. There's lots of stuff happening now behind your back that you've lost sight of. How are we going to regain that control? So, you know, I've got an 11-year-old son, and I tell him, you know, there is a superpower you can have that you can develop that makes everything in life easier to manage, and that, that is metacognition. If you're getting worked up or angry, take time out to just think about how that feels, acknowledge where you're feeling it in the body, and talk about it. And once you start doing that, once you start isolating and analysing the feeling, that feeling goes away. You're no longer a victim of it. You're in control of it. And we need to do this when we're on scene with a difficult job. You know, I can imagine a solo basics responder going to, you know, a big car crash with multiple occupants at night and you've got several casualties. How do you focus your priorities? You've obviously got to manage the scene and have a sort of command safety communications you know, assess triage, treatment, transport approach, a major instant MIMS type approach initially, but sooner or later you've got to start doing stuff. How do you prioritise that? And and some of those jobs are really tough. I, I teach a lot of paramedics in New South Wales, and some of them are work in a very remote and rural setting. And when they share their stories, some of those toughest stories are where they're having to team lead and be the proceduralist as well, because they're the only paramedic with advanced skills on scene. And there's no easy answer to that. It's, it's going to be hard and often it's not going to look pretty. But if you can give it some structure and recognise what the difficulties are going to be before you encounter them, you can start to have a plan for how to deal with them. So, for example, if you are being pulled simultaneously between being a team leader and, say, managing the airway, then the one way to approach that is, first of all, to acknowledge it And if you have to break away from managing the scene or managing the team to do the airway, then you're explicit about that. I'm now becoming task-focused on this airway. My eyes are off the monitor. Can someone please watch the monitor? That sort of thing. Okay, I'm happy with this airway. Someone else can take over bagging. I now have eyes on the patient and the monitor. And that closed-loop communication, I have eyes on, I have eyes off, Roger, something we do a lot in Sydney Hems with a doctor paramedic team. And we will often be handing over the situational awareness of the team leadership, the leadership role of the team. We'll often flip between paramedic and doctor, depending on the clinical and logistic demands of the scene at the time. But there's never any doubt in who's running the show because of that closed-loop communication and handing over. It's nice when you can work in that tight pairing and you've got the ability to have one person who sort of eyes in on the task and one person who's eyes out on the surrounding it's a luxury as you eloquently described working as a solo responder it's 
pretty thin on the ground and that watershed between I'm actually going to have to step in and do something practical here and I'm going to lose all of that situational awareness that I've built up but this thing needs done and it needs done now it's a horrible gear change between trying to not get involved and not get sucked into what you're doing but equally acknowledging that there is a technical task that needs to be done and you're the only person that can do it yeah it's it's a huge challenge and I, I certainly don't have all the answers but I think the first step to tidying it up is just understanding understanding that when you are task focused you lose all peripheral awareness you are technically blind to the many things going on okay moving on to looking at the teams now again for us in basics and responding solo and in small teams we're at the mercy of, of flash teams forming and shifting and adjusting as jobs go on particularly complex jobs how does does a zero point survey help to frame that big unknown i guess around how teams are going to work yeah i think it helps in terms of thinking about team structure you know ideally you want a team leader and team members and acknowledging that whether you're the leader or a member you all share responsibility in the output of that team and the thing that makes teams work effectively is the shared mental model what's going on and what needs to be done and who's going to do it so the so-called task work mental model what needs doing and the teamwork mental model who's doing it and you might get a situation where you've got more than one person vying for that team leader role and you may have to address that early on uh, by making simple explicit patient focused statements like hey we've got some great suggestions coming from everyone here and we all know it's only going to work well if there's just one team leader so i suggest i take that role or you were here first or you're the most senior or you're the physician or whatever so you know less important in who team leader is is that the team leader and members are on the same page and sometimes rather than fighting to be the team leader stepping back and deciding okay i'm not going to win this one but to make my patient have the best outcome, I'm going to be the best team member this team leader could ever have. And I'm going to help him or her lead to the most effective level by periodically insisting as a team we all share a mental model. So ideally, the team leader is periodically saying, OK, just to summarise, we have an eight-year-old child with an isolated head injury and a depressed conscious level. The priorities are to get this child anaesthetised and intubated. We'll keep them warm. We'll do some neuroprotection. We'll move them to the paediatric trauma centre. But if the team leader isn't really doing that and things aren't really happening, then as a team member, you can help that team leader. OK, boss, any chance we have a 20-second update on what we think, you know, the summary of what's going on here? and what you'd like everyone to do in the next five minutes. And if things aren't happening still, making helpful suggestions in a, a non-confrontational way that doesn't undermine their ability to lead. It's quite a subtle art, and I quite like some of the phrases you've used there to try and stimulate things happening, because it's a horrible feeling when the job starts to judder and you, you stop making progress and start just wallowing in the complexity of it. And I like the idea of saying, oh, you know, can you just give us a quick update on where we're headed? Nice non-confrontational way of addressing it. Yeah, I think that's the key. At the end of the day, we're all 
these fragile apes trying to work together with egos and identities and professional self-worth it's complex and if we just turn up and we're very spock-like if anyone's old enough to get the reference (laughs) then we think that should work but it just doesn't and people get pissed off with you and things can fall apart so as you say it's subtle but it's so important an example I give when I'm giving talks about the zero-point survey to the paramedics in our region that will interact with aeromedical physicians like myself is, say, you know, you're a paramedic on the ground, then the doctor comes along, could be a basics doctor, I guess, as an analogy, and we might turn up, get a handover from the paramedic and go, okay, thanks for that, looks pretty sick, let's move him over there, intubate him, we'll tidy up the splintage, and then we'll go. And the paramedic could say, compare these two examples, the paramedic could say... Well, you don't want to intubate him yet, Doc. He needs hemorrhage control first. Let's get control of this bleeding, okay? And let's say that paramedic is absolutely correct. They are absolutely right. It's C before A. But what have they just done by choosing to word it like that? In front of the patient and maybe the patient's relatives, the other healthcare providers on scene, the other rescue agencies, what they've essentially said is the doctor's plan isn't very good, doesn't know what he or she is doing, this is what he or she needs to do, and I've just told him or her in front of everybody. And the way that doctor might respond, regardless of whether or not they have an ego in the the lay sense of the word, is they're going to feel confronted or affronted their leadership is going to be undermined. But what's going on at a subconscious level is actually their professional identity and competence is being challenged. And what that can create a kind of cognitive emergency reaction at a subconscious level. They're thinking, okay, I've turned up with my plan that I've trained for years to do and I've got all this equipment and drugs to do this and everyone has just been told that's a dumb plan in front of everyone. I need to fight to regain my feeling of competence. So the subconscious mind is going, alarm, 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 fight to regain feeling of competence. You must be right. You must be right. Close the ears, close the eyes, disregard all information that suggests you are wrong. You must be right. You must be right. So then when the paramedic is trying to show you the audible squirting hemorrhage (laughs) and is trying to explain to you about the priority... It's not that you're deliberately being ignorant. It's that it's quite possible that you don't hear the words they're saying and you don't see the information they're trying to show you because you're overriding priority going on in your brain at some level is to preserve your feeling of competence. So you start to ignore disconfirming information. It's a really fascinating thing. Yeah, we've all been in recess room situations where someone starts shouting, aggressively shouting and disagreeing with everyone. And that's often a diagnosis of being out of their depth and they're fighting to regain a sense of control and they're disregarding the information that's being presented to them. And that could happen to any of us, potentially. So what the paramedic could have said when the doctor said, let's intubate them and then sort out the splintage is, yeah, great idea, doc. He needs to be intubated. We'll help you get him over there in a moment and help you set up for that. First, can you just have a look at this bleeding? I'm really concerned about the hemorrhage from the leg here. What have you got that can help us deal with this? They've said exactly the same thing. No, don't intubate him now. Let's do the hemorrhage control. They've said the same thing. But they've agreed that the patient needs to be intubated. They want to help the doc do that plan. And they've asked for help with something that they've said they're a bit concerned about first. The difference is magical. They've just 
got that physician, no matter how senior the physician is, and they've made them do what they want them to do. The paramedic has owned that doctor and is using that doctor as a pre-hospital tool, right? It's in the paramedic's equipment bag is this physician that they're now using just by the words they chose to use. We know this from just interacting with everyone, the people at home. Yeah, you, you might have a partner or a spouse or you might have kids and we know if you say things to kids in a certain way, they're not going to do it. But you can use what I call guided cooperation, which is obviously also known as mind control. <laughs> uh, and the, the way you choose your words gets them to do what you want them to do by just massaging them in the right direction. And the way you do that is by just being polite, professional, friendly, courteous, non-confrontational, making every statement about the patient, not about the other person's plan or the other person's competence. You agree with them, yeah, great plan. And first, can you have a look at this point of the patient? Can you help, help us with this? So something patient-centered and find something you agree on rather than focusing on areas of disagreement. But it's subtle and it's difficult. It takes a lifetime to master. And it's pretty much the hardest element of resuscitation is not sticking a tube through the cords. It's, that's the easy bit. It's getting the team to do that swiftly and safely with everyone on the same page. That's the tough bit of resuscitation. It's interesting. You've touched a couple of times on things that fit in my brain as being followership and the ability to be a good team member. And that's something that we never really teach. You know, all of your ALS courses talk you through how you're supposed to be this perfect team leader. But actually, the perfect team leader without a group of people who can actively follow is pretty useless. Absolutely. You know, a team is a group of people working together to achieve a goal. And a team leader on their own who doesn't have a group of people working with them to achieve the goal is, is not a team, an effective team. So right. We've unpicked self and team. And I guess the environment is somewhere where most of us feel a little bit more comfortable in that this is pre-hospital 101. This is managing your surroundings and managing that real estate and trying to optimise everything that you can. Is there anything that you find a, is a kind of tip or trick that's worked for you for the environment control? Yeah, I think having a, a structure again to it. Like on pre-hospital care, you know, years ago when I was doing the DIP IMC, I was reading all the, the few pre-hospital textbooks and resources that were out there. And it was all about scene safety, scene safety, scene safety, which is so important because it can kill you if you get it wrong. But often in pre-hospital training, certainly in paramedic training over here, environment control stops with that. And the other elements of managing that real estate are really learned on the job as an apprentice over the years. And interesting qualitative studies comparing expert paramedics with novice paramedics show that the biggest differences in their practice are not the clinical differences, but their management of the environment and the resources on scene and how they can set that mission trajectory and keep it going by the management of that scene, of that environment. And the, the structure I use, we use in our training of Sydney Hems registrars and our critical care paramedics is safety, space, heat, light, noise and crowd. So safety we've mentioned, but then space, it's ideally... The sicker the patient, the more you want to try and get 360 degrees of access around them to effect a coordinated, simultaneous resuscitation. And often that's not possible to achieve, but we should aim to get 360 degrees. It might mean moving a patient from things or moving things from a patient, dragging them out from next to a wall, but just getting that space. Heat is another one. Is it too hot or too cold for me or my patient? Light, obviously, when it's dark, you need external light sources, but... 
A problem we probably have more over here than you have over there is you can have too much light. So if it's the middle of the day in Sydney and we want to intubate someone outside, if we orientate the patient so the sun's facing us, we can't see anything in the airway. We know we've got to set up so the sun is behind us um, or someone's holding up a screen or blanket to shield us from the sun. And some of the video laryngoscope screens are not that great in bright sunlight as well. Noise is an obvious one. You know, we have extricated this patient from a vehicle. Therefore, we no longer need to cut up the vehicle. So we no longer need the cutting tools. So we no longer need those noisy generators. Let's control the noise and hear ourselves think. And of course, crowd control. Who are all these people on scene? Are they friendly forces? Are they hostile forces? How do we control the hostile forces? Do we need to sacrifice our 360 degrees of access and load and go because the crowd is just too dangerous? But acknowledging that crowd control is important in and out of hospital. But the space is the big one. You know, you find novices will attempt to manage a patient in the situation they find them. And that patient may be face down, gurgling, up against a wall with clutter around them and oxygen goes on and lines go in and monitors go on in that position. And more personnel come in to try and do the lines and connect the fluids. And you get this crazy situation where you've got a pile of equipment and people around a patient that could easily have been moved in 30 seconds and it would have been so much tidier and safer. I sort of relate it to physics in a way. The analogy is the bigger the the mass, the bigger the planet, the more the gravitational pull. And it seems to me the more stuff you stick on the patient, the more stuff gets sucked in. (laughs) You have a 120-kilo patient arrest in the bathroom on the orthopedic ward from their PE and the crash team in the hospital steams in there and starts applying oxygen and monitoring and putting the defib on and getting lines in and someone senior will come along and notice that there's a corner of the room that's darker than everywhere else and that's what's going on light is now having trouble escaping and if I see a scene like that pre-hospital or in hospital I do imagine a, a dotted line a perimeter around it that I mustn't cross so I don't get sucked in. I call it the event horizon. And I, I try not to go beyond the event horizon. I stay outside it and go, guys, I've got a, a stretcher here. Move the patient out onto the stretcher or the bed. Ah, oh, but we think they might not be breathing. Good, because I've got a BVM here on the stretcher ready to go. We're not sure if there's a pulse. We need to connect the defib. Good, we can apply the defibrillation or the defib pads much more safely over here on the bed. Let's Okay, on three, let's drag that patient out, get them on here. And I find that's a sign of experience, whether it's basic responder, HEMS physician, or more often the paramedic. It's that don't get sucked in, move them out, get some space, avoid that accumulation of mass that's going to cause gravity to suck us all in. I like the idea as well of using shiny kits to lure people out. <laughs> yeah, come and have a look at this machine that goes ping. I'm sure this will be useful to try and counteract some of the gravity. Okay, so we've looked at self, we've looked at team, we've looked at environment. I'm going to kind of skirt over patient because I'm hoping that that should be welded in people's heads enough. I just want to look at the up bit of your process. What does that look like on the ground? How Do you have a structure for the way that you do a, a quick update? Is there a, a rhythm to it? We definitely have a structure within Sydney HEMS because we've got a pre-hospital and inter-hospital workflow map, which is a single page, which shows the physician and paramedic arriving together at the top, doing their zero-point survey, arriving with pre-specified equipment. They take the handover together and then they split. And the physician will do the primary survey and establish the clinical priorities. 
the paramedic will establish the survey of the scene and think about the next steps. If we need to intubate, where are we going to do that? How are we going to extricate this patient from here? And so on. So they'll come up with a logistic plan. The physician will come up with a clinical plan. And we'll delegate tasks where possible to other providers on scene. We'll try and stick to doing the things that only we can do. And then a minute or so down the line, when we've had a chance to get our head rounds those things, we come back together, and that's where we do our up update. Right, this is what's going on clinically, this is what needs to happen. Okay, well, we're going to do that over there, then we're going to move the patient through that gate into that paddock there where the helicopter will meet us. And then we'll start allocating tasks to make that happen, share the teamwork mental model, who's going to do these things now to make things happen. And then periodically we'll say, okay, right, we're all set up for intubation now, everybody. We're going to do our checklist if we can have quiet from everyone, please. Everyone look out, everyone can speak up if there's an issue. Yeah, we'll do the tube and then we might be ready to leave the scene or we might have to do thoracostomies or whatever. But there'll be periodic updates and inviting everyone in the team to share any concerns. And the best application is where things really are starting to fall apart or the patient's now deteriorated or we're finding time is running away from us and we're on scene far too long. Why are we still here? Right, everyone, we've been here a long time. Let's just have a quick update, see what's left to do and what else we can expedite before we get going. So, yeah, there's definitely structure to its initial application, but then it's sort of as needed, really. The ideal state to be in as a team is where you don't need to do that, where you're working in a system with personnel that are so trained and honed that you barely need to say a word to each other. This thing called implicit coordination, where you get a flow state within a team, which can be a lovely thing to aspire towards, but reality is there's always an ad hoc component to your team, always. So it's never wasted sharing that mental model explicitly out loud. Building in the priorities in that, and that, again, is something that has been new to me over the last couple of years, because I grasp the importance of sharing the model of where we are currently, but that's a picture in time, as opposed to giving folk the direction of travel, that kind of vector of these are going to be the rate-limiting steps. What are the key things in terms of identifying goals? Do you like the short-term, medium-term, long-term, one-minute, ten-minute, one-hour timelines, or do you look at patient-specific goals? Yeah, that's a great question. Pre-hospitally, it tends not to be that detailed it's really these are the immediate things we're going to do and then review and then these are the next things always having in mind what your destination is going to be certainly within the hospital and particularly with more complex cases i use another structure which is starts with overall goals and then the plan to achieve that goal and then the actions required to affect the plan so to give an example of that you might have an elderly patient that comes in unconscious, uh, is profoundly hypotensive, has had a fever pre-hospital. You're thinking sepsis, but why are they unconscious? Is there a bleed? Should we intubate them and scan them? So we need to figure out what the best plan is, what question we're trying to answer. But beyond all that is what are our goals here? You know, if this is a 98-year-old nursing home patient with an advanced care directive, that's a key thing to establish before you go too far down aggressive interventions. So the overall larger goal for the patient then the plan to achieve the goal and then the actions required. And there might be specific subtasks to achieve that action. But not all of that has to be shared with the team around the bed. And sometimes for progressing a resuscitation effectively, fewer words are better. Right, team, this is what I think is going on. This is what I want us to focus on in the next five minutes. The ultimate goal being to get this patient to CT within 25 minutes or whatever. 
yeah, as you say, there is always a danger of getting bogged down in the complex interventions that come later and, and not kind of making progress, I guess, with the smaller stuff that needs to happen first. Yeah, and I think that sometimes there's an issue with how we train, particularly our doctors in simulation, certainly those that are going for postgraduate exams that have a simulation component. They're encouraged to be tested as an individual. It's their exam and all the confederates there are just there to help them get marks. And to get those marks, they'll start shouting out, all right, I'd like some ketamine and rocking for intubation. We'll proxenate with this and I want an adrenaline infusion and I want you to set up the ventilator and we'll need an art line in the left radial artery and we'll order a chest X-ray and we'll do full blood count, UNEs. And that never, in real life, that can't happen. It yeah. cannot happen. You've got to do one or two or three things at a time depending on how many people there are on your team. And actually, part of our training should be to help us learn how to do that. What are the first steps? How do I make that happen? What are the next steps? How do I make that happen? How do I not overload the drugs nurse? We don't train for that. We certainly don't teach people that stuff for their exams. We teach them the opposite. And in some senses, it's slightly easier in that pre-hospital environment because as a general rule, particularly as a basics responder, you've only got the kit you've got and therefore you can have all the fancy plans in the world, but you've got three of this drug and one of that drug. And once you've used that up, that's you. You treat with diesel at that I know, and you won't overload your drugs nurse because you are your drugs nurse often <laughs> as well. That's a great structured walk through that approach. And I think there's, there's so much in there that I certainly will take. I think a lot of folk can build on, as you say, as that start point before we even get to our patient. With all of our presenters, we've been asking them to give three top tips. And I just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of take-home points for folks listening to this. Well, Dave, my three top tips related to this, I think, would be Number one is, remember, there are multiple opportunities to optimise how your pre-hospital mission can go. And these will present themselves to you long before you set eyes on the patient. Uh, Number two is, no matter how good you are or think you are, it's the output of the team that ultimately determines patient outcome. So whether we're team leader or team member, we really need to hone those skills of how to get a team to function effectively together. And last one, number three, is that effective scene management or environmental control goes way beyond just scene safety. There are other components to optimising scene or environmental control. Uh, And that has been shown to be one of the determining factors that make up the difference between expert and non-expert pre-hospital practitioners. Those are my three top tips. Cliff, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and chat to us and share your wisdom and and some of the humanity that's come along with that wisdom. Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the chat and it's good to connect with friends from Basics. A good few years with Basics down south. So yeah, keep up the amazing work you guys do. Thanks. Cheers. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.